Open your Bibles, uh, if you would, to Acts 14. Our, our text this morning is Acts 14, verses 8 to 18. Here we're going to see a crippled man healed and a crowd deeply confused. But we'll also hear how Paul begins to preach the gospel to people who know nothing about the scriptures. But before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, let's pray together. Our prayer for illumination was written by Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan in the 4th century. Let's pray. Lord, teach us to seek you and reveal yourself to us as we seek you. For we cannot seek you unless you first teach us. And we cannot find you unless you first reveal yourself to us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Acts 14, verses 8 to 18. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by you, but by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kids, y'all come up and join me. Welcome here. You can kind of slide around this way a little bit. The poinsettias take up a little room. Good to see y'all. Have you ever had to introduce yourself to somebody? or Are you learning how to make introductions, like introducing one person to another? Is that something that you guys do yet? A little bit? Yeah? Well, whenever you're introducing someone, you usually start with some of the things that are most important, like their name and, and sometimes where they're from, things like that. Like, when I introduce myself to people, I say, hi, my name is Sam. And they just kind of give me a blank stare, like, okay, so what? And then I, I tell them, I'm Jenny's husband. And then their face lights up, and they say, oh, Jenny is wonderful. And, and that helps them. Well, in the passage that we just read, there were some people 
who don't know the real God. They don't know the Bible, and so they, they don't know anything about what he is really like. And so Barnabas and Paul introduce them to him. And they start in a way that actually seems kind of strange at first. They don't start with Jesus. They don't even start with that problem of sin that you and I share, that everybody shares. Instead, they tell them that God is the one who made them and made everything. And so all people belong to him. And they also tell them that God is very good and he does good to all people. And so all people can totally trust him. There's a lot more that can be said about God, of course, and you can be sure that they would get there eventually because you can't know God fully if you don't know Jesus. But introductions have to start somewhere, right? You can't say everything all at once. Now, guys, this is important for you and me today because more and more you are going to meet people at school and in town who don't know God. And since they don't know him, they think that they belong just to themselves, which is actually a terribly heavy thing that nobody can carry. And they don't know how good God actually is, and so they don't yet believe that they can trust him. And so one of the ways that you and I can, can introduce them to God is, is by focusing on those first two things, that God is our creator and he is good. And we can help them understand that so many of the good things in our lives, they are gifts from God, and they point us to God, and even to God's greatest gift, which of course is Jesus. Because of course we want people to know Jesus, but starting with our introduction to God as our good creator, it's a good idea. And because our God is happy to introduce himself to people through us, that's another reason why we call this good news. You believe it? All right. Thanks, guys. You can go back to your seats. Well, turn in your Bible, if you haven't already, to that passage in Acts 14. Uh, we've heard in previous weeks that the wonders done by the apostles, like this healing here, were God's way of authenticating or approving the message that they proclaimed. And in fact, last week, we heard how the powerful signs were actually being done by Jesus himself. Through them, he bore witness to the words of his grace, it says, proving that the story told by his messengers was true. Even so, many in Iconium did not believe some of the folks wanted to stone the apostles, and when Barnabas and Paul learned about the plan, they wisely vamoosed, uh, heading into the neighboring territory while preaching the gospel all along the way. And so they came to Lystra, and, and as we see what happened there, we're going to ask three questions to help us understand this passage, because this is a brand new situation in Acts. And we need to notice what's different. So first, what glimpse of the kingdom is given? What glimpse of the kingdom is given? Second, why is it misunderstood? Why is it misunderstood? And, and third, 
Where does writing, writing that misconception begin? How do we write that wrong misconception? It's important for us to answer these questions because Lystra looks a whole lot like our culture today, like I was telling the kids. And if we mean to be faithful witnesses to Jesus where he put us, then we had better learn how to talk to people like the Lyconians. And so first, let's consider this question. What glimpse of the kingdom is given in Lystra? Well, actually, we could say they get a glimpse of the kingdom in two ways. It comes in word, and it comes in power. It comes through Paul's preaching, and it comes through Paul healing this crippled man. Briefly, uh, look at how the kingdom is glimpsed through Paul's preaching, which we actually see in verse 9. Now, we know that Paul's pattern was to go to the local synagogue first, preaching the gospel to the Jews. After all, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament faith, and so it was right for them to hear about the Messiah's arrival first. But that doesn't happen when Barnabas and Paul arrive in Lystra. Maybe there was no synagogue. The Jews that actually show up in the very next scene come from other towns, and so Lystra seems to be an almost exclusively Gentile town. It seems to be the kind of place where people don't know the God of Israel at all, not by scripture, not by experience. Lystra was Gentile country through and through. And so Paul begins speaking. Now, we don't actually know what he's saying, but in verse 9, we see that he's already talking. Preachers got to preach, right? Uh, From previous passages, of course, we know that he is preaching the gospel of Jesus. And through his words, God is, uh, sorry, Paul is giving them a glimpse of the king and his kingdom. And that glimpse is capturing the attention of at least one person. Look at verses 8 and 9. We, we learn about a man who has never taken a step in his life. And just imagine that for a moment. Carried by others or dragging himself along every day of his life. As a boy, he never experienced the pleasure of running with the wind in his face. As a man, his ability to work would have been severely hindered because being crippled from birth, he couldn't use his feet. What longing did he feel as he listened to Paul's words? Is Paul telling how Jesus died to purchase the forgiveness of sins? Is is Paul saying that in Jesus' rising from the dead, the restoration of this broken world has already begun? Maybe Paul is sharing the glimpse of God's kingdom that Jesus himself gave when he healed the lame and made them leap like deer. Whatever he's saying, Paul with the vision of an apostle of Jesus, can see that the crippled man believed it. It says Paul, looking intently at him, sees that he had faith to be made well. This man has caught a glimpse of God's king and kingdom through the preaching of the word. He's heard the good news and he believes it, that in Jesus there is healing for body and soul, a healing that happens now sometimes 
and is certain in the world to come. And so seeing his faith, Paul shows another glimpse of the kingdom of God. He adds to the words that he's spoken a miraculous, mighty work of God. He looks intently at the man and says in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And immediately the man springs up and begins walking for the first time in his life. He's made whole by the king who loves to heal what is broken. As we said, this sign, this beautiful healing, proves that the message of the apostles is true. No one can do such things unless God is with them. But don't fail to see this as a picture of the kingdom of God, a glimpse into the kingdom of God. It is a picture of what God is doing and will ultimately do in this world. He is the God who makes things right who fixes what is broken, who restores what sin marred. This man walking is a glimpse of glory, a sneak peek of the new heavens and new earth where God makes everything new and whole. You understand, that same kingdom is glimpsed here and now. God's work among us may seem a little less mighty because many of us still walk with a limp. But make no mistake, for those who have open ears and eyes, people can hear and see God's kingdom here. Wherever God's church is preaching the gospel of Jesus and seeking to live in line with the holistic beauty of the age to come, people will see something of what it looks like to see God on his throne. We proclaim Christ and him crucified for us, risen for us, reigning over us as our king. These are the words of the kingdom. And when you love each other by putting the interest of others ahead of your own, you are giving people a glimpse of the kingdom of God. Like when this church gives $42,000 to the Mercy Fund this year beyond what was included in the budget, that generosity is a glimpse of the kingdom of God where no one goes without what they need. When you bear with one another, and Lord knows you have to bear with some of us, <laughs> when when you're kind to one another, we show that we belong to the Lord. As, as Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. When we forgive each other, when we forgive our enemies, when we practice patience in the face of hostility, we are displaying the same gospel that we proclaim that Jesus forgives before he is asked, that sin cannot stop his sacrificial love, that selfishness destroys, but our God is selfless and full of sacrificial love. These things, too, are glimpses of what life looks like when God reigns, less mighty than a crippled man walking, perhaps, but no less a miraculous work of God among us. 
And throughout the New Testament, the apostles urge us to cultivate these glimpses of God's kingdom. In word and deed, we speak and show God's good and gracious reign over us until he comes and shows it to all in its fullness. And for many people, like that crippled man, these glimpses will be powerfully attractive. Many will come to the Lord as they hear and see the gospel of Jesus from us. Still, though, don't be surprised when people don't get it, especially at first. Because it's easy for people to get a glimpse of glory and to totally misunderstand what they are seeing. Look back at verse 11. I want us to consider this question. Why do the Lyconians misunderstand the glimpse they saw of the kingdom? You see it there. When the people see what Paul did, they shout in their own language so that Paul and Barnabas don't immediately realize the mistake. The, the people exclaim, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And they call Barnabas Zeus, probably because of his age and bearing. Paul they call Hermes, the messenger of the gods, because he does most of the talking. They've seen a glimpse of the kingdom of God, but they get it all wrong. Why? About 50 years before Paul healed this man crippled from birth, the Latin poet Ovid related an ancient story about a place just next door to Lystra. The legend tells of Jupiter, that's Zeus to the Greeks, and his son Mercury, that's Hermes, visiting the neighborhood, gods visiting the neighborhood disguised as mortal men. Incognito, they looked for hospitality. And instead, they found a thousand doors bolted and no words of kindness. At last, however, they found welcome from an elderly couple, Philemon, not that Philemon, Philemon and his wife, Bacchus, who brought them into their tiny cottage on a hill. And in that little home, thatched with straw and reeds from the marsh, the disguised gods were generously entertained out of the old couple's poverty. The old couple were even about to sacrifice their guard goose until it climbed up into Zeus's lap. And then the gods revealed themselves, promising to reward the couple's kindness. First, they sent Philemon and Bacchus up the hill for protection, while Zeus flooded the entire valley below, killing everyone who refused to welcome the gods. And then at their request, Zeus made the old man and his dear wife priest and priestess of the new marble-columned temple, that suddenly stood where their little house had been. And to them who had spent many harmonious years together, it was granted that they should die in the same hour, so being spared the grief of separation. 
And as that story goes, many years later, when their time came to die, they themselves were transformed into trees intertwined. An oak and a linden tree stood whispering together for an age of the earth. It is reasonable to assume that the people of Lystra knew that story about their neighbors. And even besides the story, two inscriptions and a stone altar have been discovered near Lystra, which indicate that Zeus and Hermes particularly were worshipped together as local patron deities. As Gentiles living without the light of Scripture, they, these, Zeus and Hermes, these were the only gods that they knew. And so upon seeing the crippled man healed and having their own gods as the only explanation, you can imagine how eager these people were to honor their gods, both to avoid suffering judgment and to gain the gods' favor. They move quickly. The priest of Zeus show up with oxen dressed for the occasion, a sacrifice to the gods who came to town. Uh, we're going to come back to that response in a moment, but if we are asking why they misunderstand the glimpse of the kingdom they see, then the answer is actually fairly simple. They confuse the glimpse of God's reign for something else because they're filtering what they see through their prior theological understanding. Given their history and their experience, their confusion actually makes a lot of sense. And, and this shows us that as you and I walk through this world, every person we meet is a theologian. Every person. They all have some conception of God. It may be tremendously distorted. It may be misshapen by the stories and imaginations of their culture and their family. It may even be scarred by experience to the point that they deny God's existence. It might be the product of pure ignorance or poor teaching. But everyone, everyone is a theologian. And everyone lives out of their understanding or misunderstanding of God. For people then and now who walk in darkness, not knowing the God of the Bible, the light of Christ and His gospel is often confusing at first. The glimpses of His reign over us are easily confused for something else. God's grace and generosity toward us is misunderstood as goodness inherent to us. People see us loving each other, taking care of each other, bearing each other's burdens, and they think those are good people. I've heard a person talk about you. People here at Trinity, I've heard a person talk about you and say, those people have it all together. They are so kind and good, and I'm not like that at all. That person is laboring under the misunderstanding that you are as you are because of something in you rather than the grace of God toward you. Don't you know that your generous giving and caring for someone else's kids like they're your own 
and not holding grudges, don't you remember that those things are not normal in this world? Those things are the age to come breaking into the here and now. And, And when you say, my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong, body and soul, in life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't you know that that confession produces deep confusion in those who don't know the Lord? Such speech does not mesh with their own theology that says they belong to themselves. Remember, Everyone is a theologian. And so don't be surprised when people misunderstand the glimpse of the kingdom they hear and see in you. But if they see Christ in you and praise you as being good, instead of the God who is doing good through you, then pay attention to Barnabas and Paul here, because they begin to show us how to right that wrong misconception. But where do we start? Where do we start righting that wrong misconception? As we discover the answer, come back for a moment to the Lyconians' response to what they saw Paul do. What are they doing when they bring those oxen dressed for sacrifice to the gates? Barnabas and and Paul don't understand what they are saying, but they immediately recognize what the priest and people are doing. They are worshiping. Now stop and think for a moment. We are going to consider what's wrong with their response because there is something wrong with it. But first, ask yourself this question. What did they get right What's right about their response? When they caught a glimpse of power, real power, when they caught a glimpse of goodness, real goodness, what did they do? They worshipped. Not only is everyone that you meet a theologian, but everyone you meet is a worshiper. And what we need to learn from the apostles is not that we're trying to get people to stop worshiping. It's that we're trying to get them to redirect their worship in the right direction. Our, Our aim is to point worship away from what is empty to him who is full and real and alive and satisfying. That is our goal. We want people to worship the true and living God. We want them to see His beauty and His goodness and His grace and His power. And we want them to glorify and enjoy the God who is. But pay attention to the details. Look at how Barnabas and Paul begin writing wrong worship. Briefly, we're going to notice five things in Barnabas and Paul as they try to redirect the people's worship. First, their grief and urgency. Notice Paul and Barnabas, their grief and urgency. Second, notice their gentleness and respect. Gentleness and respect. Third, their clarifying sympathy. 
clarifying sympathy. Fourth, their presentation of the path. Presentation of the path. And fifth, their appeal to creation and to common grace. An appeal to creation and common grace. Now, I'm actually cutting an entire page out of my sermon right now uh, because I don't have time. So I have to be painfully brief for the first three points here. But, but at the start of the apostles' response, you can see their grief and urgency. They tear their robes as a mark of grief. And they rush out into the crowd. They draw near to them with this question that is designed to stop the sacrifice immediately. Why are you doing these things? It's not so much a question inviting an answer as it is a plea to stop. But unlike Herod, who gladly received the worship of men just a few chapters before, these apostles are brokenhearted at the misguided worship that is around them. And so to their urgent, grief-led action, they add gentleness and respect There is grace in their response that is without any hint of mockery or condescension. Things that are sadly all too present in the church today. No, rather than presenting themselves as above or superior to the crowd, the the disciples, the, the apostles offer a clarifying sympathy to the people. They present themselves as mere humans, having the same nature, having the same need of God's saving work as the Lyconians themselves. And we have to do that too. After all, don't we send our worship in the wrong direction all the time? We have to cultivate these three things in our own context today. There, there is so much more to say there, but because those are essential parts of our engagement with those who do not yet know the Lord. But let me focus on the final two points of what we see in Barnabas and Paul in their engagement with the crowd, because although this gospel presentation seems incomplete, maybe due to the chaos of the situation altogether, they still point people to the path, the path of repentance, and to the God of grace who is at the end of that path. Look at how the apostles present the path of repentance as a part of the good news itself. Look at verse 15. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. That language of turning is the language of repentance, of a change of heart and direction. But what are the vain things from which they need to turn? Obviously, they must turn from the false gods to the living God. They must turn from empty offerings and sacrifices and embrace Christ, ultimately who sacrificed himself in our place and in whom alone we are reconciled to God, rescued from wrath and blessed with every blessing the living God can bestow. 
But there's more. They must also turn from all their own ways in which they once walked. In, in verse 16, the apostles say that God used to allow the nations to walk in their own ways, being satisfied with mere food and gladness. But from even those things, they have to turn, not because those things are inherently evil, you understand. It's not a turning that says, well, no more food and gladness for you. Rather, those good things that they have enjoyed must be recognized as not being the ultimate things that they really need. And so they must turn from them as well, tracing those good things back to the ultimate source, to the living God who gives good things and pours out His common grace upon all peoples. Today, you and I must show people the same path of repentance, helping people to see that going your own way in life is not, it's not the way to satisfaction. Going our own way in darkness cannot actually get us to the light. People may be chasing empty, vain things, or they may be chasing good things, but neither of those things can get you to the God who made you and cares for you. Even some of you may be walking in your own ways. You're doing what you want because you think that's where you're going to find your life. Here is the call to turn to the living God who calls to you. We have to be ready to call people to walk this, this path of repentance, the same path that we ourselves have to walk every day. But how is it that we can help people to see that God alone can satisfy our hearts? How, how do we begin to share the good news with people who don't know their right hand from their left hand when it comes to spiritual things, who, who do not speak the language of Scripture? Well, there was another time when people were ignorant of the Lord. Walking in darkness for long, long years. But the light of the Lord dawned on them, and they caught a glimpse of Him and His kingdom, and they saw mighty deeds that stopped them in their tracks and inspired worship and awe. But, but they still didn't know, not really, the God who was doing those mighty deeds. And so Moses introduced them. You understand, the Israelites walking out of Egypt in the Exodus, would have known that their fathers had a God. But all they had known for 400 years was slavery under the gods and pharaohs of Egypt. And so as they walked out of Egypt, heavy laden with the gold of Egypt, and having seen the gods of Egypt crushed by the Lord in the plagues, they must have been wondering who is this God? Who is the Lord who has shown His power to save us? And how does Moses begin his answer? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
the apostles do the same thing. As they shine the light of the gospel on these people who have lived in darkness. These people don't know the scriptures. They don't know the Lord or the story of redemption that he has been writing for so long. And so to help them know the one to whom they must turn, the apostles don't begin with wrath because that wouldn't make any sense to them. He doesn't even begin with Jesus, although you better believe he's going to get to Jesus. No, the apostles begin with creation. They begin with Genesis 1 and 2. They begin with the place where God has left a witness to himself in the lives of these people. The apostles point them to the food that they enjoy and the gladness they experience in this life. But then they point to the creator who gives those good gifts as if to say, hey, don't look at us. Look at him. The God I'm telling you about is the God who does good to people and will do more good to you than you can imagine if you turn to him. Like I was telling the kids, more and more in our culture, we are going to encounter people like the Lyconians, people who do not know the Lord or Scripture or the long story of redemption that it tells. And so as one writer says, we need to learn from Paul's flexibility here. We have no liberty to edit the heart of the good news of Jesus Christ. Nor is there ever any need to do so. But we have to begin where people are. To find a point of contact with them. With, with secularized people today, this might be what what constitutes human authenticness? The, the universal quest for transcendence? The hunger for love and community? The, the search for freedom or the longing for personal significance? Those are our connection points. In other words, part of our witness to the gospel of Jesus today includes, and maybe begins with, building bridges. It's so easy for us to tear people down and point out what's wrong in their lives. And, and of course, we're going to have to name things that are wrong. That's part of the call to repentance. But like the apostles here, we must be looking for the places where God has left witness to himself in the lives of those that we meet. In Lystra, they focus on food and gladness, and those are still powerful apologetics. But whatever is good or true or beautiful in the lives of unbelievers are bridges to the gospel. Those are the places where God has left a witness to himself in their lives. And we can begin helping them to see that all of their desires are ultimately met in him. Maybe we can begin helping them understand that that yes, they may have turned their family into an idol. But the love that they have for their family, the real love that they have for their family, actually fits best in the kingdom of God. Where he loves and he cares for his own children without crushing them beneath the weight of expectations. Or we can tell men that their desire to work and achieve were put into them by God himself. 
Only he doesn't mean for us to find our identity or our worth in those things. Rather, we can begin to work out of our secure identity as people made in his image and already, already highly valued by him. There are so many bridges that we can build. So many starting points for the gospel. We're going to talk more about this many chapters from now when we get to Acts 17 because Paul does something very similar on Mars Hill in Athens. But we know, as the writer I mentioned earlier goes on, wherever we begin, we shall end with Jesus Christ, who is himself the good news and who alone can fulfill all human aspirations. But learning, learning to look for the places where God has left a witness to himself in their life is the way that we begin writing wrong conceptions about the kingdom of God. We, we carry people back to the beginning, introducing them to the God who made them and who does good to them. He is the one who shows himself to all people and invites them to know and enjoy him. Yes, you have to see that this bridge building is slow business. Even in Lystra, Paul and Barnabas barely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. And for us, we know that the people we are introducing to the Lord might not get it, at least at first. So remember that them getting it isn't ultimately up to you. The Lord himself calls those he has appointed to eternal life and they will hear his voice and they will come. They'll catch a glimpse of the king and his kingdom and be drawn to him. Our job, our job is merely to bear witness to him. And so whether you are gifted to build long, beautiful bridges to the gospel or maybe just short ones that could cross a creek, Let us seek to know and worship and enjoy this God for ourselves who has made himself known to us. And knowing him, let's begin to introduce him to others. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you for this word. And we ask that you would give us the grace both to know you more deeply and to share you more fully with those whom you have put in our path and woven into our lives. Help us to bear witness to Christ and to his goodness and to your kindness to all that you have made. We ask this in the name of Christ and for his sake. Amen.